Okay. So it's like we're good to go. Can you hear me? Timirandhasya, Yananjana Shalakaya, Chakshurun Militam Yena, Tasmai Shri Gurivi Namaha Siddhantot Palasar and Literasikam, Hungsam Vilasat Makam, O Dariakya Sudhama Sivagadhanam, Vishramba Bhakti Pradam, Yatya Yukti Vijakshanam, Twagavido Vaisishta Shaktasara. Andeham Tripurari Namakayatim Shri Bhakti Vedantinam Ananda Maya Lila Ananda Lila Maya Vigrahaya Himabhadivyacha Visundaraya Tasmai Mahaprima Rasapradaya Chaitanya Chandraya Namo Namasti He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandhu Jagatpati Gopesh Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostuti Tapta Kanchana Gorangi Radhe Vrindavaneshuri Yashapanu Suti Devi Pranamami Hari Pri Okay, so welcome back everybody. Glad to see everyone here. Let's see. Uh, so, so, so far, we've been discussing the Leela of Madhavendra Puri and his uh, relationship with his deity, Gopal, who revealed himself and asked for service and whatnot. So, on the first day, we went through a, a brief overview of the Leela. And then the last time we discussed uh, the Tattva of the Arjavigraha. And now today we actually get to the qualities of the devotee. Um, there's a really nice article written by Thakur Bhaktivinod, um, published in his Sajjan Toshini magazine, um, wherein he writes about this topic he called it the, the surup of the vaishnav and so um i really like that his approach there was very comprehensive and not a very long article but um a really nice approach and what what he brought out there was the the surup lakshan and the tatasta lakshan and so i wanted to go into that a little bit because that's uh it's a framework that we find in, throughout um, our philosophy. And if we are familiar with that, those two concepts, then it's uh, much easier to grasp the essence of a, a tattva or a, a thing. So the swoop lakshan, of course, is the intrinsic characteristics of a, an object or a, a concept. And the Tatasta Lakshan, <clears throat> excuse me, Tatasta Lakshan is the marginal characteristics or the characteristics that arise out of the Srut Lakshan. So 
a couple of big examples that I thought of before I get to the actual qualities. Um, so, for example, in Uttam Bhakti, we know that the Sarup Lakshan is Krishna Nuchilanam. That is the intrinsic characteristic of the type of bhakti that Rupa Goswami is talking about in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is this favorable cultivation, you know, cultivation of love of God with a favorable attitude. And being devoid of any other endeavors or and not aspiring for karma or gyan, those are marginal characteristics that define that type of bhakti or reveal, show that that type of bhakti is going on. And they arise out of that first characteristic. Another example is the, the Sarub Lakshan of Rag Bhakti. We find this in the Chaitanya Charitamrita is called Gada Trishna. It's a deep thirst to please the Lord. And out of that arises Avishtata, complete absorption in Krishna consciousness. So it's very interesting. I remember the first time I read that, I was like, oh, interesting how that works. Um, because one would think that absorption <laughs> would come first, uh, but it doesn't. Um, so there are 26 qualities of a, a devotee that we find in different places. Um, but before I go into that, I just wanted to, there's a really nice verse that I wanted to read, or which most of you will probably be familiar with. It's from the fifth canto of the Bhagavatam. Yasyasti bhaktir bhagavati akinchana sarvair, excuse me, sarvair gunais tatra samasate sura hara bhaktasya kutu mahatguna all the demigods and their exalted qualities, such as religion, knowledge, and renunciation, become manifest in the body of one who has developed unalloyed devotion for the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Vasudev. On the other hand, a person devoid of devotional service and engaged in material activities has no good qualities, even if he is adept at the practice of mystic yoga or the honest endeavor of of maintaining his family and relatives, he must be driven by his own mental speculations and must engage in the service of the Lord's external energy. How can there be any good qualities in such a man? So the point that I'm making by quoting this verse is that all of these qualities are embodied in the devotee and Madhavendra Puri, of course, being a high, high level devotee, and manifested all these qualities. But as we'll hear going forward, um, there's not enough, there uh, wasn't enough description of what he did to really uh, showcase all 26 qualities. And so there's a, but there are a number of them that really uh, are prominent in the Leela that I wanted to bring out. Um, but before that, I want to also go through. So what are these qualities? Well, actually, first, uh, here was a thought that I had was um, as I've gotten older and I've um, tried to gravitate more toward the essence of everything that we are involved in. When I'm studying a topic now or I'm reading something, I'm 
in the back of my mind, I'm asking myself, how is this going to benefit me in my practice? And if it's not, then I don't read it. I don't bother. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it could be mm, super abstract uh, or seemingly abstract material like you find, for example, in the Padamatma Sandarbha, or really detailed, dense philosophical material that we find maybe in the Sandarbhas or something like that, that is not super basic. Um, one may wonder, well, how is this going to help me? You know? um, and the general idea is that it's part of the Sambandha Gyan. So that forms the framework that we do what we do with. And so that benefits us. And, um, but in this case, I thought of two reasons why knowing the qualities of a devotee would be useful to us in our daily practice. And that would be the first of which is how to identify a, a devotee. So if we see a person uh, having these qualities, then we know that they are indeed a Vaishnava. And to the extent that they don't, they are either an aspiring Vaishnava or they're not. <laughs> and then we can gauge our mm, level of involvement with them accordingly. And so that's kind of like the, the external reason to, to know this. Um, very useful if we're, um, for example, looking for a guru or um, trying to understand where, <clears throat> where along the path a person is to some degree, obviously. I mean, we can't really see a person's internal life, but it manifests to some degree externally in these qualities. And the other reason I thought of was, and arguably perhaps the more important of the two is that we can see whether or not these qualities are manifesting within ourselves and uh, cultivate them consciously, and which is a bit of a, a bit of a backwards way to go about it, I guess you could think of. In other words, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, sincerely engaged in bhakti, in the, in the, in the primary limbs of bhakti, <clears throat> excuse me, then these qualities will arise naturally without any extraneous effort. But it's good to know that there is sort of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a standard of behavior set by these people who have these qualities. And so it's something to, to know, okay, if I'm moving, if, if you're starting to see these qualities arise in yourself, then you know you're moving in the right direction. So that's a very useful, um, very, very useful uh, thing to know um, some of these qualities. And so, um, So, with the Swarup Lakshan and Tatasta Lakshan in mind, 
want to start going into the actual qualities themselves and I'm going to read through the list of them just so we kind of have an idea of what they actually are. And then we're going to talk about the single one that is the pseudo-blockchain from which all these others are derived. So the first one is the devotee is very kind to everyone. He does not make anyone his enemy. He's truthful. He's equal to everyone. No one can find any fault in him, <laughs> unless they're atheists. He is magnanimous. He's mild. He is always clean. He is without possessions. He works for everyone's benefit. He's very peaceful. He's always surrendered to Krishna. He has no material desires. He's very meek. He is steady. He controls his senses. He does not eat more than is required. He does not. He is not influenced by the Lord's illusory energy. He offers respect to everyone. He does not desire any respect for himself. He is very grave. He is merciful. He is friendly. He is poetic. He is expert. And he is silent. So you may read that list and think, well, okay, I've got a ways to go. I know I surely do. <laughs> Um, it's the tall order, um, and, but uh, the surublakshan of the devotee then, which one of these, out of all of these, the 26 here, um, there's only one that is that, that is that the heart of what a devotee is, and that is, he is surrendered exclusively to Krishna. So out of that one quality, all the rest of these manifest. So it's very interesting. Uh, it's very interesting how that works. Um, so as we become more God conscious, we become more like God and he, of course, possesses all these qualities. And so, as I mentioned, there's um, only, a, <clears throat> excuse me, there's only a handful of these that um, in the Leela of Madhavendra Puri, we're going to see that are really prominent. And those are, I mean, of course, he's very kind to everyone. But, um, you know, he's truthful, he doesn't make any enemies and such. But um, so Madhavendrapuri, I mean, one of the ones that really stick out, he's without possessions, right? He works for everyone's benefit. That's a big one. We're going to talk quite a bit about that one. Um, he has no material desires, clearly. He's steady and does not eat more than required. Those really, uh, as we can see from the Leela, those they really stand out. Um, so I'm going to, uh, um, kind of go through the list again, but with this time with, um, I went through the list and I kind of made some notes, just some mental notes, uh, uh, 
very brief purports, and then the ones in Madhavan Rupuri's case will speak about more extensively. So merciful. So a devotee is, of course, merciful, which means they're kind, they're compassionate, and they only desire the good for others. And in other words, they have no envy of others. They have nothing. Uh, they, they see everybody as uh, just a jiva trying to make, eke out some existence, uh, eke out a living in this very difficult world to, to live in. Uh, they know how harsh the world can be. Uh, I was talking with Guru Nishta uh, the other day, and um, I kind of, uh, I said, uh, the world is a harsh mistress. And, and that is basically uh, uh, playing off of the, the title of a, a science fiction book that was written in the 60s by Robert Heinlein called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. So the world can be a very harsh mistress. And so the devotees recognize that and they recognize that jivas are just struggling in the, in the material world. And so they're merciful to them. They try to help them. They, they want to uplift everyone. And as we'll hear later on, that they might have been for you or any, any devotee of, of a higher caliber, they are very busy in trying to help everyone. That is, in fact, at, at a certain point in our trajectory toward going back to Godhead, that becomes our sole occupation in life besides our internal cultivation, trying to benefit others, trying to uplift others, and give them the the solution to the problem of material life itself in the comprehensive form of spiritual knowledge that becomes the sole occupation of the Vaishnav. Um, so something to look forward to there. We will become merciful if we're not already. Uh, the next one is undefiant. So I'm as I'm, of course, I'm reading these, the, the first uh, list that I read was from Prabhupada's uh, purport uh, of that fifth canto verse. And now I'm reading a slightly different translation. So undefined is submissive to spiritual authority. And so they're not, yeah, they're, they're not, uh, they're meek. And they 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 they're, they're, uh, they give respect or just do. Um, the next one is the essence of truth. So they're truthful. They're, they're honest people. Vaishnavas are honest people. They've got, um, you know, if God is the source of all truth, then a godly quality is being truthful. The devotees are that. And so. I think most devotees probably don't struggle too much with that quality or <laughs> the lack thereof. The next one is equipoised. So the mind and senses having those under control, then the jiva is undisturbed by external conditions. And so this is one of the qualities that Krishna describes as yoga or yoga is samatvam, equality. So that's a, a 
quality that you'll find in a, and bhakti is a type of yoga and so therefore if one is indeed a bhakta one is a yogi also uh, so the next one is faultless the Vaishnava's heart is pure so when Prabhupada says no one can find, find fault in them um, and I mentioned the well, the atheist can uh, that's <laughs> that's not what we're talking about in the terms of I think it's it's really a faultless faultless is really talking about the purity of heart and of, of it sincerity of intention to aspire to be a servant of Krishna and a surrendered soul and if one is already a surrendered soul then um, and they have all these qualities yeah then they will be it'd be kind of hard to for the most part I think their behavior would be difficult to find fault with because they are kind and generous and whatnot and there's there um, as we've heard about Prabhupada that he was liked by pretty much everybody um, people would meet him and they didn't know what he was about but they just somehow they disliked him because he was he had a very attractive personality and so um, that's one of the qualities we find in um, sadhana bhakti that uh, the devotee at a certain point as as they become auspicious shubhada they become as guru Maharaj renders it in his shikshastakam commentary popular pleasing and popular um, even though they don't they don't desire any fame attention from ordinary people comes to them because they have these qualities <laughs> in fact the, the intent the more the the more you don't want the, the fame in a sense uh, paradoxically more it will come to you because because specifically because you don't want it um, and you run from that and Madhavendra Puri exemplified that as we'll hear later on the next one is music munificent or generous so um, and this is like a generosity of spirit a generosity of of heart there they give people the benefit of the doubt uh, and they're willing to see the good in others and overlook their faults. Um, they're not, the Vaishnava is not, their preoccupation is not looking for the bad in others. They're, they're like bees gravitating toward the honey rather than flies gravitating toward the, uh, well, if you've been around cows, you can see what flies gravitate toward, <laughs> the cow patties. So. Do we want to be you know, seeking out the the unclean things or the in others or seeking out their good qualities and exemplifying those and so their their generous their their generosity of spirit is uh, a large aspect of their personalities in every case that i've ever seen and another thought that i had about this quality was that they're they're being they're so full that they can happily give to others so they're they're generous materially as well. And in other words, they whatever they have, they will freely give in order to assist someone else because well, they're not attached to the things they have. And also they're they're again that generous spirit. They're willing to help and give to others freely. And as you can see that as we go through 
these qualities, you can see that there's a fair bit of overlap between them. Like for the example, the next one is you go from munificent to gentle and how they kind of, or, or merciful and gentle kind of play off each other. So to be gentle is to be without malice and uh, seeking to reduce the suffering of others whenever possible. So that, that quality works together with mercy. So if one is gentle and is only seeking to reduce other suffering, hates to see other people suffering, then of course they're going to be merciful to them and try to help them. And the next quality is pure, devoid of material desires. Uh, so purity is a big topic in, in most religions and it means different things to different people. And, and by purity, of course, we mean what I'm talking about here. I mean, it's one thing to, to be purity external, or ex, uh, excuse me, externally, <laughs> you know, like uh, in the, the first uh, rendering, the, the devotee is always clean. Yeah, okay, sure. That's what I mean. You can find plenty of people who regularly bathe who are not devotees. <laughs> so uh, what that means, of course, that it's an internal type of purity. It's not, it's purity of character, of course, but it's, also, it's purity of heart, and, and what that means, purity of heart, is being devoid of material desire. Don't there's no there's no endeavor for material things. And so the next one is without material possessions. <clears throat> so in Madhavendra Puri's case, he was obviously he's a sannyasi. So he was literally without any possessions. I mean, other than we hear he had his, his mala that he chanted on and the clothes he was wearing. Um, he didn't have anything. I mean, that, that's a, obviously an extreme level of renunciation. Like we hear about the Goswamis where they, they would, uh, well, like, for example, Sanatan Goswami arriving. Um, where did he arrive? Was it Nityananda's? No. He came to a house that I can't remember the devotee's name, the, the place where Mahaprabhu was staying. And um, he had just gotten escaped from prison and he was, still had a giant beard. And was it Chandrasekhar? Um, so he went and Mahaprabhu told him, um, when they met, he's, <laughs> Mahaprabhu told him to change his clothes and dress like a Vaishnav and whatnot and get a haircut. And so he did that. And then he had a, I guess it was like a chudder or quilt. It was called a quilt, the way it's rendered in the text, but or Prabhupada renders it as. But So he had this very, apparently a very nice chudder even that was um, Mahaprabhu kind of gave the side eye <laughs> to that and Sanatan took the hint and then he went to the river and he found a man there with a, just a torn quilt and he asked him to trade for it. <laughs> and the man was like, why are you making fun of me like this? You know, you, clearly you just, you know, you just want to make fun of my poverty. And Sanatan said, no, 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 <laughs> 
I'm serious. This is the real deal. I, I want that quilt, the one you've got, and you can have this one. And so he made this trade, and Mahaprabhu was very happy to see him when he adopted that. And um, Raghunath Das Goswami, similar kind of idea, just the extreme, extreme renunciation of these Goswamis. And um, now they they took it to this extreme for a reason. They didn't they didn't particularly need to be that extreme. They could have been just as just as happy in, in material opulence like Pundurik Vidyaniti. Sure. But of course they were in a position to exemplify the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and establishing a Sampradaya. And so they wanted to demonstrate that bhaktas are renounced as renounced as Gyanis. And in some cases, um, to the point where, frightfully so, uh, I mean, Madhavendra Puri is, he was taking rest under a tree when Krishna appeared to him with the pot of milk, as we heard in the beginning. So he's got, he, his soul surrender, his, the Surabhakshan, his soul surrender to Krishna gave him no material desires. <laughs> and therefore he, material possessions to him because he was a sannyasi, he, they had no use for him. But this does bring up the point of vairagya in based in Gyanmarg and the Yukta Vairagya of we find in that we find in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So we may find people who are externally renounced and yet um, extremely attached to the things they do have. So like uh, poverty will do that to people where they're you find uh, in, in India, for example, people who are or anywhere uh, where the people are extremely poor, they don't have much, but what they do have, man, if you try to take it from them, they'd be very unhappy with you. So general, this means uh, in, a, in a bit larger sense, in the, the Yukta Vairagya sense, it means, again, so Yukta, Yukta comes from or it's a, a similar word to yoga. And so then again, this brings up the principle of samatvam, this equality, the middle way. So one is the Vaishnava is not attached to things and neither do they reject things. They recognize things for what they are. They're made of Krishna's energy. And as such, they're his to be used in his service. And so there's that famous quote by Srila Prabhupada where he he said, we don't, the jnanis, they go like this. When you try to give them things, they say, no, 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 we don't want anything. He said, but we do this. We, we embrace everything and we, we take it and use it for Krishna's service. And that's Yukta Vairagya. So um, that's an important, um, important quality to, to understand and uh, understand it properly. Because obviously we're living in the material world and we have to engage with the sense objects, whether we like it or not, otherwise we will die. And so, and that's a, I would imagine, a, be a bit of an inconvenience. And so, um, 
how to how to how to interact with sense objects without being owned by them. Um, you know, there's a there was a movie from the '90s called The Fight Club that had Brad Pitt in it. it was one of my favorites back in the day. And there's a, but there was a, a line out of that a line in that movie that really stayed with me. And at one point, the protagonist <clears throat> is having a conversation, and he said, "The things you own own you." And so we definitely want to avoid that. And so it's one thing to have things, and it's very nice to have material facilities. Um, house to live in and you know relatively comfortable bed and all that it's great um but to not be attached to those things that that takes some time that takes some work um and uh, as far as the, like the extreme renunciation of the goswamis uh, that came out of their absorption in not only not only their uh not only their establishing the sampradaya but also their their absorption in krishna consciousness they genuinely forgot that they had external forms they were that they were go into trance and live there for extended periods of time and like uh, the famous example of raghunath das goswami in his later days when he was living at radha kund meditating on the banks of radha kund and so absorbed in his service to Sri Radha in his Manjuri Sarup that the sun was burning him uh, or the tiger comes and the Sanatana Goswami sees this and it's like, <laughs> and then he, he, a young girl comes and gives him shade or I don't remember the details of it, but um, there's a couple of different examples where he's, one from Radha, which Sanatana Goswami saw and was like, that is unacceptable. We, we can't do that. We serve her, right? So build a hut. Um, so, but he, he was so oblivious to his external environment because he was so absorbed in Krishna and so absorbed in his internal life. So um, as I was told right from the get-go when I joined by um, Bhakti Bhavana Vishnu Maharaj, who was staying at the ashram in Eugene, where I joined, he said, he was talking about the Goswamis, and he's like, so they are, are they exemplify renunciation for us, but we should not try to imitate them. We can't do that. Their, that their, their renunciation is otherworldly. Like Madhavendra Puris, I mean, you've got to, in order to be able to live like that, to have nothing, literally nothing and be happy and to be willing to undergo the, the physical inconveniences that come along with having nothing. Um, it's not so easy to do. You've got to really have something going on internally to be able to do that. Um, otherwise you're just going to create a disturbance for yourself and others and um, probably um, fall from the path or at least hamper your development if, in other words you if you overreach your Audi car well there's going to be a rebound effect so the next quality 
checking time here. Always engaged in beneficial work for all. So there was some interesting um, thoughts that I had about this one. Um, and it centers around uh, giving Bhagavad Kata in all its forms. And um, now specifically with regard to Madhavendra Puri, it's centered more around the deity, which we can talk more about in a minute. But um, just in general, this, I thought I was just trying to think about what the, the form that this generally takes. So the gopis say that the highest, the most munificent welfare worker is the one who speaks about Krishna. Beautiful verse. Um, so the devotee, their primary uh, welfare work is not opening hospitals. It's not feeding people, although they may do those things. It is giving Bhagavad Katha in all its forms, whether it's verbal or written. Why? Why is that? It's because the Krishna Katha, Lila Katha is the medicine for the Hridrogam, the disease of the heart, the, the materialism. <laughs> we're, we're all material addicts, as Gurunishta likes to think of it as, which is, um, it's good. We're, we're all recovering addicts. And so the Katha Amritam, the, the Amrit, the, the deathless nectar of speaking about Sri Krishna and his devotees. That is the thing. That is the thing that um, is the most, it's, it's, that's the medicine the, with the most comprehensive effect and can give the, the, the comprehensive solution to the problem of material suffering. And and so much more I mean, can take us uh, can can turn us into a person with all these qualities and who is a, a soul exclusively surrendered to Sri Krishna and that is extraordinary. So this speaks to the power of sound itself and how it has the ability to be being so subtle. Uh, it has the ability to penetrate the mind and anybody who's ever um i'm sure we all have the experience of heard of hearing excuse me hearing some advertisement and having that or remembering a song just hearing a, a fragment of it and then having that looping through the head uh for the rest of the day i'm sure we've all had that experience and so sound is so subtle and it's very difficult to escape it if anybody if any of you've ever been to vrindavan <laughs> you know that um, there's a, a, just a cacophony of competing sounds. Um, all the different ashrams start beginning at dawn there, or sometimes even before dawn, they're playing bhajans or playing this or chanting shlokas or whatever. And it's all going on at, at top volume, of course, because it's India and that's how they do everything. And it's very difficult. Uh, I was there 
trying to do Giriraj Puja at that time, and I've got all this sound that I'm trying to you know, tune out and focus on my Puja. It's not so easy to do. Um, so sound is very powerful. And then, and then one could say that the, the power of speech is, uh, well, it's unique to humans. And it, one could say that it is uh, perhaps our greatest power. Um, because it gives ideas form. We take this abstract picture in the head and we use sound to uh, manifest it into the world. So it's bringing feelings and ideas into the world from the heart and from the, of the soul. Um, it's a very fundamental human capability. I mean, uh, the, the, the Vedic tradition gives a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, what's the word? Uh, airtime, you could say, it gives quite a bit of attention to the power of Vak speech. And indeed, we see from the Bhagavad that Sri Brahmaji himself manifests the entire material creation through the power of sound, Shabda. So, um, and Srila uh, Sridharmaraj talked about the power of sound uh, by giving an example of how in wartime, one of the first things, uh, if, if you're trying to conquer another country, that one of the first things you do when you get there is take over the communications. Um, so any, in any case, uh, the sound and speech, there are immense implications for manifesting into the world. And with that power comes responsibility. And so this is uh, what Krishna calls the austerity of speech in the Gita. And that, uh, that relates to uh, quality 26 of the list. The devotee is quiet, silent. They're not, they're careful with their speech. They don't speak a bunch of nonsense because they know <laughs> that it's going to have, if not uh, the ability to manifest something physical, it's going to affect their own mind and the minds of those around them. And so being munificent, being always engaged in the benefit for others, beneficial work for others. They want to uplift others. And so they understand the power of speech. And so then what is the best speech? Tavakatamritam. So that is a uh, something to meditate on, um, which I, I think uh, I've noticed as we get, I know it in myself, as I get more uh, absorbed and whenever I, whenever I'm more absorbed in my practice and whatnot, I'm much more careful with my speech. And in times when I've been uh, in a different space, so, you know, anything goes. And um, those of you who know me personally know that I don't always have the, <laughs> the, the most pleasant speech, but, you know, trying, trying to move in the direction of being more responsible with that.
And a related verse to this, this, this quality of being always engaged in the beneficial welfare work, uh, beneficial work rather for all is, um, it's a Bhagavatam verse that I'm sure you'll be familiar with, most of you. As pouring water on the root of a tree energizes the trunk, the branches, twigs, and everything else, and as supplying food to the stomach enlivens the senses and limbs of the body, simply worshiping the Supreme Personality of Godhead through devotional service automatically satisfies the demigods who are parts of that Supreme Personality. So um, if we want to benefit the world, the best thing we can do is to become a devotee of Krishna. To, so if we surrender and we offer our energy to the center, Krishna being the center, of course, then that by, by giving our energy to that center, then the world is nourished. And it's kind of paradoxical. You know, the example, of course, is given the root of the tree. If you water the root of the tree, then the entire tree is benefited. And so if Krishna is an analogy, in this analogy, then Krishna is the root. And then, so if we give our energy to him, then the entire tree, all the leaves and twigs and branches are energized as well. Um, so Vaishnavas, they bring the light of God into the world. That's what they do. So they're, they're, they're energizing the world. They're enlightening the world by, by embodying that God consciousness. So Madhavendrapuri himself, he benefited the world by establishing the worship of Krishna, engaging all the surrounding villages. So at that time in Vrindavan, sure, there was worship going on. But then when Madhavendrapuri got involved, when he was brought there by Krishna, Krishna even says, I've been watching you for many days, wondering when will Madhavendrapuri come? So when he did finally come and he, the deity revealed himself in the dream and Madhavendrapuri established the deity on top of Govardhan. Um, that, that worship was extended to hundreds and thousands of people. I mean, I don't know how many people were living in the area at the time. From, from the description, it was quite a few. So all the surrounding villages, these people suddenly had this opportunity to give their energy to the center, to Krishna, that they didn't have the, that opportunity in the same way before, especially since it was, it was service that was uh, manifested or, or extended through such a high caliber devotee as Madhavendra Puri. You know, it's like if I engage someone in Krishna's service, that's one thing. If Madhavendra Puri engages you in service, that's something else entirely. Um, because he's got a direct line to Krishna. And so if your service is going through him, then you know that Krishna is accepting it. Uh, so he's benefiting all these people by engaging them in in this, in this beautiful, you know, gorgeous service to the Gopal deity, which as we heard in the last session is, if you have the Adi card to see, he's non-different from Krishna himself. So um, pretty amazing, this, the, the scale that he was able to 
engage so many people on, um, which in his case, I mean, it, which I mean, it's difficult to, to think of it this way because, because it's uh, subject to error, but you could say that the, the scale of his engagement uh, externally of people in service externally reflected the depth of his internal relationship and love of God. Now there can be a tendency to think uh, amongst some neophyte people that, well, just see then if that's the case, then, then Prabhupada's the greatest devotee because he did this amazing external, he engaged the whole world in Krishna's service and, and brought Gaudi Vaishnavism to the entire world. So therefore he's greater than everybody else where that's not actually true. I mean, you could have someone who is completely unknown sitting on a tree in Vrindavan as Prabhupada was before he had this whole mission, before he had his, his, his worldwide mission, just sitting there at Radha Damodar, just a sadhu sitting there and crying every night for Rupa Goswami's mercy. So just because so there's, there's no external engagement and service that the devotee engages others in doesn't necessarily mean that they're not deeply realized. That said, um, they will, because they are trying to help others and they will try to engage others in service, um, whether it's through, you know, in our Sampradaya or in our Padivar, I should say. And that often takes the form of um, printing books, like Prabhupada, even he's living penniless, he's a beggar after he took sannyas, living at Radha Damodar as a beggar in India, just doing his bhajan and trying to print back to God in magazine, scraping together the rupees to travel to Delhi, scraping together the rupees, begging for paper and <laughs> just to get this magazine uh, in the hands of a few people. So that was his preoccupation. So according to his means at the time, he was, he was doing this, um, engaged in this beneficial work for others. And so when he was given greater means, when he came to the West, then he employed Yukta Varagya and he <laughs> engaged thousands of people because he had the means. So if a Vaishnav has, is of very meager, very uh, humble, modest means, then they will offer what they have, you know, uh, a fruit, a flower, a leaf, or water, as Krishna says in the Gita. If that's all you have, then offer it, and I will accept it. That's good. And if you, but if you're a king and you only offer me water, then you're not really. That's not really proper, right? If you have the means, then you offer what you can. So um, one has to be cognizant of uh, one's ability. And we need to do what we can according to what we can. So with that, I wanted to, uh, it's getting close to an hour and I wanted to leave a few minutes for any questions or, or comments. And that leaves us a fair bit to go through in the next session, which is pretty much what I wanted to do. So there are any questions or comments. 
I welcome them now. Doesn't sound like anybody's got anything. So we will stop there for this time. Thank you everybody for taking the time to listen to me. <laughs> Thanks for the fist bump, Madan. <laughs> um, you're welcome, Bindumati. Good. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Vaishnav Gonaki Jai, Shimadavendapuri Jiki Jai. Till next time. Hari Prabhu Ki Jai. Jai. Hari Bhul. <laughs>